Well, over the last several weeks, we've been looking at different parables that Jesus told about God's kingdom. And let me remind you of something about the parables. Uh, They are not simply um, illustrations. They are not simply quaint stories. Uh, The parables are designed to challenge how we think. They're they're designed to to get us to, to... come up with a, not come up with, but to see a a different perspective on who God is, what His kingdom is like, even who we ourselves are. And uh, Jesus' parables are tools, tools that He uses to get at our hearts in, in a way that mere propositional statements can't. These these stories kind of sneak in under the radar sometimes and, and surprise us. And, and today's parable, the one we're going to be looking at, is often called the parable of the two sons. Uh, it doesn't get as much attention as many of the other parables. And so I'm excited to look at it with you today. Uh, the parable is found in Matthew chapter 21, if you want to turn there. Um, that's page 826 in the Pew Bibles. Um, We're going to be looking at verses 28 to 32 this morning. And so I'm going to read uh, God's word for us and then pray and ask for his help. This is Jesus speaking, and he is speaking to the Jewish religious leaders as he uh, gives this parable. So Matthew 21, beginning in verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, The first. Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Uh, Let me ask for God's help. Our, Our Lord and our God, we... We pray that you would give us open hearts today to your word and that you would do a good work in us by your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the outline today is very simple, just two points. Uh, First, hearing the parable, and then second, what does it mean for us? And like we did last week, I want to first just walk through the parable so we can hear the story as Jesus told it and understand what's going on. And then we'll talk about how it applies to us. So first, hearing the parable. Uh, Let me briefly set the context for you. Jesus, he's come to Jerusalem to great fanfare. Uh, It's that scene that we, we know as the triumphal entry. And it's the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry. He's come to Jerusalem. The, the cross is just mere days away. And, and as Jesus nears the cross, the, the conflict that's been brewing throughout his ministry with the religious elite, the religious establishment, it, it's moving toward a climax. Things are getting uh, very heated. 
And in this context, the religious leaders are angry with Jesus. Just the day before, he had gone into the temple and driven out the, the money lenders, cleansed the temple. And, and in the passage right before ours, they, you know, they see Jesus in the, in the vicinity again, and they come up to him, and they, they demand to know, who gave you the authority to do these things? And, and Jesus, in response, um, poses his own question to them. Was John the Baptist a prophet from God or not? And it, it's, Jesus knows what he's doing here. He, he knows that they're, gonna be, they're unwilling to answer that question. If they reveal publicly what they really thought about John, that he was a nobody, um, the people are going to turn against them because the people love John. And so they essentially refuse to answer Jesus' question with uh, what one commentator had called the, the lamest response ever given. We do not know. And so in verse 28, the, the first verse in our passage, we pick up the conversation. So Jesus has more to say to these religious leaders, and this time in the form of a parable. And Jesus often does this with people when, when he wants to kind of teach something, but do it subversively and, and surprise them. And so we read the parable a moment ago, and as you can tell, the, the story is fairly straightforward, isn't it? It's one of the shorter parables. There's three characters, um, a father and two sons, and as we heard, the father instructs the first son to go work in the vineyard, maybe a, a family uh, vineyard, maybe a family farm, and, and you see the son's response there in verse 29. I will not. Another translation has it as, don't want to. And I, and I think that, that kind of captures uh, better the, the son's attitude. It, it's very disrespectful, extremely disrespectful. Now, keep in mind, this is not just a, a 10-year-old child. This is a grown son. And, and some things don't really change, do they? I mean, Despite the cultural distance between first century Palestine and us here, 21st century Southern California, this is a situation we can all relate to, right? We've either been the son or the daughter who says, don't want to, or we've been the parent <laughs> receiving that response. It's not simply a modern problem. So banish from your minds that idea. If we could just go back to the golden days when, when everything was working properly and everybody behaved properly, that time never existed. So the, the first son refuses. No, I, I won't go work. But, we read, afterward, he changed his mind. In other words, he, he regretted his, his defiance of his father, his disobedience uh, toward his father, and he went to work in the in the vineyard. And kids, maybe you've done the same. You know, your your parents come to you and say, "Hey, I, I need you to clean your room," and and you refuse, and you complain, and you protest that it's so unfair. You never get to have any fun, and then a little time goes by, and you start to think that you know that wasn't a very wise response. It's not going to work out well for me, and you change your mind and you go clean the room. Uh, we don't know why this son changed his mind. Maybe, maybe he had a tender conscience. Maybe other family members and other workers witnessed uh, his refusal and he feels shame over publicly disgracing his father 
like that. This is a vi- an honor-shame culture that would have been very, um, uh, it would have been a big deal. Whatever the reason, he had a change of heart, and he goes and do- ends up doing what the father had instructed him to do. Now, the father gives the same instruction to the second son, and at first glance, the second son's response seems much more promising, right? I go, sir. I mean, this is the kind of son you want, right? He's, he's eager, he's compliant, he's respectful. But it was all for show. The, the, Jesus says he didn't go. He, he made promises, but there was no follow-through. And then in verse 31, after Jesus has told this, this short story, he, he says to the religious leaders, which of the two did the will of his father? Now, it's not a trick question. You know, sometimes Jesus asks questions that, that are a little trickier than they first seem. This is not a trick question, and, and the religious authorities answer correctly. The first one. Now, in one sense, both sons dishonored the father, right? I mean, the, the first one by refusing initially, the second son by by lying, essentially. But but ultimately, in the end, the first son obeyed, did, did what the father instructed. Now comes the sting, Verse uh, continuing in verse 31. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, as you know, in that society, in in that first century Jewish society, tax collectors and prostitutes were some of the most despised social classes. I mean, they're they're at the bottom of the hierarchy. They're as low as you can get. The tax collectors, because they collaborated with Rome, they had reputations for being dishonest, for being greedy, for uh, taking advantage of, of God's people. Um, the prostitutes, obviously, were despised because of their sexual immorality. And Jesus tells these pious, upstanding, respected Bible teachers and theologians that the despised sinners are entering God's kingdom. And not only that, not only are they entering, he says, they're going ahead of you. And in context, that that has the sense of, they're going in instead of you. And to give you a sense of just how shocking that was to hear, imagine Jesus saying to us today, uh, I tell you, Grace Bible Church, Pedophiles and abortionists are entering, entering the kingdom of God instead of you. I think some jaws would drop. Most jaws. Uh, we would be shocked. And, and this was unthinkable to these men, to these chief priests, the elders to whom Jesus is speaking. You know, in, in their understanding of the world, in their understanding of how things work, they viewed themselves as insiders in God's kingdom. You know, the, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and, and other people like them who flout God's law, they're the outsiders. You know, they're probably thinking here, what in the world do you mean, Jesus? They're excluded, not us. <laughs> and, and here's why Jesus says this in verse 32. He, he explains, 
for John, that is John the Baptist, came to you in the way of righteousness, meaning John preached a message about true righteousness. And, and Jesus says, you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. And so here's the connection Jesus is making to the parable. The, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they're like that first son. With their lifestyle, they said no to God's commands. They said, no, we will not do what you say. God's, God's will revealed in his law about how his people should live. They said, absolutely not. But when John the Baptist came preaching a message of repentance, they responded. They heard. They repented. They believed. They turned from their sin. And you can read all about that in in Luke 3, how many were coming and hearing John and being baptized. And in that sense, they did God's will. They heard God's message through His prophet. Repent. Embrace the mercy of God held out to you in this message. And they believed. The, the religious leaders, on the other hand, the Bible teachers, the theologians, the priests, they're like the second son. You know, they gave the appearance of being, um, of doing God's will. They professed allegiance to God's law. They were very zealous about upholding God's law, as you know, if you've read the Gospels. They diligently performed all the rituals down to even the most minute detail, but it was all for show. And Jesus says they didn't believe God's messenger. John comes preaching a message of repentance, preparing the people for the coming of the Messiah, and they reject him. And then ultimately, as you know, they'll go on to reject Jesus, the one to whom John pointed to. And and Jesus says even after they saw the effect of John's ministry, that these notorious sinners were giving up their sinful ways and sinful lifestyles and repenting and and seeking to follow the God of Israel, even after they saw all that, which should have been a clear message that, that John is from God, they remained unmoved. They didn't repent. And it's another one of those surprises we we find just in parable after parable. Jesus flips conventional thinking on its head. You know, conventional religious thinking says good people get in, bad people are excluded. And, and Jesus says, not so fast, not so fast. That that divide, that good bad divide, it's too simplistic. There's more to the story. Ultimately, we see there are no good people. <laughs> there are no good people. There are only the the real divide is between those who know they are not good and throw themselves on God's mercy and grace, and those who think they are good, those who want others to think they are good and expend a lot of energy and effort trying to convince others that they're good. That, that's the real divide. And so Jesus, again, in this parable, just shocks the, the religious sensibilities of, of these Jewish leaders. And so that's the parable. You know, brief, um, surprising in some ways. Uh, what application does it have for us? 
You know, what, why is this parable here? And, and let me first give it to you negatively. This is, this is not why it's here. Um, it's not here so we can congratulate ourselves for not being like those religious leaders. Uh, I don't know if this happens to you, but more often than I would like, I find myself becoming self-righteous about other people's self-righteousness. Uh, does that happen to you? <laughs> do, do you see that uh, showing up in your life? It, it's so twisted how we do that, right? I can't believe that person is so prideful. <laughs> We're saying, I would never be like that. <laughs> and yet I'm being like that right there. Um, Jesus did not tell this story so that we could point the fingers, the finger at others. It's actually the opposite. Uh, this parable... It really forces us to wrestle with, with some difficult questions. You know, how am I like these people, these religious leaders? Uh, in what ways do I resemble them? Are there areas of my life? Are there pockets of my heart that, that kind of sound like these people? You know, they were, experts at keeping up appearances. If we were to read on in, John's, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, Jesus, you know, he, he goes after them. And he says that they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Um, they look good on the outside, and you can think of the things he says. They look good on the outside. They're pious, they're moral, they're upright, but inside, there's a whole other story. They, they keep up appearances and and it's a temptation a constant temptation for church people like us we're church people <laughs> it's a constant temptation this this keeping up of appearances you know portraying ourselves um, as maybe more godly or more spiritual or, or more put together than we really are. It's not as common anymore, but people used to have church clothes. You you know what I'm talking about? A a special outfit that they pretty much only wore on Sundays. Their their Sunday best. And and typically it was a fancier uh, style of clothing than they would have worn during the week. And and I'm not critiquing that at all. That's not what I'm I'm talking about. But what I want to say is we all have metaphorical church clothes. And it shows up in, in different ways. Uh, you know, maybe we, we come to church on Sundays and we adopt a different vocabulary and different phrases when we're at church that, that sound like the Christian thing to say. But you'd never hear us say anything like that outside of church. Um, or we, you know, we carefully control the narrative that others hear about us. You know, um, maybe we we drop little comments about how we parent, what our marriage is like, um, what our prayer life is like. Also, others get this a certain impression about us, a, a certain image in their minds about who we are, and and maybe there's a grain of truth to it. You know, it's not it's not completely fake. Maybe there's a grain of truth to it, but but it leaves them with this. Um, image of us that doesn't quite match reality. 
It's church clothes, you know, looking our best. And, and why do we do that? Why do we do that? Have you ever kind of looked into your heart and, and wondered, why? <laughs> why do I try to keep up appearances? Why do I spend so much time crafting an image of myself for others? And our hearts are complex. There's not necessarily one single reason. It's going to be different for different people, um, different motivations, different things driving us. But let me suggest a, a few reasons. For some, it's about hiding. It's about hiding. You know, there's, there's a sin we do not want others to catch wind of. A sin that, that we don't want to let go. And we want to keep it a secret from others so that we can keep indulging it. We don't want to give it up. And, and so we put on those church clothes, you know, to, to sort of distract others from that thing, that, that sinful thing that, that we're hiding. And, and maybe that is some of you here today. And I don't know. I mean, only you know. Only God knows. But, but if that's you, maybe this parable that Jesus tells, uh, hear it as God's kind appeal to you to, to stop hiding. To stop hiding. Stop play acting. Give up those church clothes and, and just come clean. Uh, confess your sin to God and repent and, and receive His forgiveness. Uh, hear it as God appealing to you. Stop deceiving yourself. Maybe for some of us it's fear. You know, what will people think if they see the real me? What will they do if they realize... I struggle. I don't have it all together. I've got problems. It's, it's that fear of rejection, right? I, I don't want them to see the real me because they're just going to turn their backs on me. Or, and, and sadly this is not all that uncommon among church people, um, maybe we've harshly judged others or we've witnessed how others have been harshly judged. And we don't want to be on the receiving end of that. (laughs) We've seen it all too often, and and we don't want to be on the receiving end. And so the the church clothes, the keeping up appearances, it's a way to kind of protect ourselves from harsh criticism. Uh, Closely related to fear, the desire for approval. The desire for approval. Um, I need others to think well of me. I need them to really believe that I've got this down, this Christian life thing down, uh, whatever it might be. I need other people to validate me. I need them to to justify my existence. I I need them to pronounce me acceptable, to to say that I'm, I'm good enough. Otherwise, you know, if, if I don't have their approval, then I don't have value. I don't have worth. I don't have meaning or purpose. And, 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 and I'm a nothing. Now, that desire for human approval, it's not always wrong. It's not all bad. There can be a way that it's appropriate. But, but it's not something to build your life on. It's not something to build your identity on. It, it, it's really a flimsy 
foundation for your experience. If, if, if your whole life rests on other people approving of you, eventually it's all going to crumble. And Ray Ortland, an author, just has some wonderful things to say about human approval. Just stay with me for a moment as I, I read what he said. He, he makes a couple points here about what human approval is. He says, number one, it's divided. Um, some like you, others dislike you. It's a split vote. Who can you believe? Uh, human approval is shallow. No one knows your deepest heart. What if they did? Um, human approval is distorted, he says. Your friends overlook many failings. Your enemies can't see anything right with you. How do you sort it all out? And then lastly, he says, human approval is unsatisfying. He says, the need of your heart for belovedness goes far beyond anything another sinner can say or do. So, approval, fear, hiding. uh, There are all kinds of reasons we might pretend to be someone we're not. And Jesus shows us here in this parable, this simple parable and his response to the religious leaders, he shows us that keeping up appearances, it's a dead end. It's a dead end. It it doesn't lead to life and flourishing in God's kingdom. It it doesn't get you closer to God. In, In fact, in the case of these chief priests and elders who were all appearances and no substance, it actually kept them from God, Jesus says. And and Jesus says not only is it a dead end, there's a better way. There's a better way to be, a way that does lead to life, a way that does lead to flourishing and meaning and security. And and Jesus pointed to it in the parable. The, The response of the tax collectors and the prostitutes. They threw themselves on God's mercy. You know, no pretense, no church clothes, no pretending, just humble, desperate dependence on God's mercy and grace. And, and you can even get a glimpse of this in that, in that reading from Luke 18 earlier that Ben read for us, uh, where you have the, the um, Pharisee and the tax collector praying in the temple and, and the Pharisee, you know, you can just imagine him so smug and feeling so good about himself. And he, his prayer is, as, as Jesus says there, he's really talking to himself. But his, his prayer is just this list of virtues that he exhibits and, and all these accomplishments, religious accomplishments, moral accomplishments. The tax collector, on the other hand, very simple prayer, right? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. And, and friends, that's not some, simply something you pray to get into God's kingdom. You know, something, an attitude that you adopt when you're turning to Christ and then you move on. I mean, that is, that, that awareness of being completely dependent on God's mercy and grace is is what marks or should mark our whole way of living in God's kingdom. (laughs) We don't really move beyond, I shouldn't say we don't really, we don't move beyond that desperate, humble dependence. And so, 
How do you resist that pull of keeping up appearances? And it can be be a strong temptation, can't it? How do you resist it? And and I'll close with, with this. How do you become someone who's honest about themselves? Honest with God? Honest with others? Someone who knows that the church clothes just don't cut it? Someone who's who's humble and dependent and unpretentious. And here's how. It's by recognizing that there's a third son in the passage. Did you miss the third son in the passage? I I don't have a different translation than you do. Don't, don't, Don't worry. The third son in the passage is the one telling the parable. Jesus is the truly obedient Son. He's the one who was perfectly faithful and always did the Father's will. And and as Paul says, He was obedient to the point of death, to the point of dying on the cross to rescue us from our disobedience, from our rebellion, from our attempts to keep up appearances. And, And if you are in Christ... God has declared you righteous in His sight. In other words, God has said, I approve. In Christ, you are approved. You're clothed in His righteousness. No more need for that, those shabby church clothes, because that's all they really end up being. You know, as, as much effort as we put in to making those church clothes look nice, they're, they're shabby. And, and there's no need if you are in Christ a man in Christ, a woman in Christ, a child in Christ. There's no need to fear what God thinks of you. I mean, He knows everything about you. (laughs) He knows your sin. He knows your weakness. He knows your struggles. And He loves you anyway. And, And you come to Him with your sins and your failures, not your not your church clothes, not, hey, look at me, I'm a good Christian, aren't I? You come to Him with your sins and your failures, and He gives you grace. He gives you grace. You don't have to fear His judgment. Well, if I don't you know, get my act together and, and make myself look good, um, He's just going to come down on me with, with judgment. No. Christ has already borne the judgment we deserve for our sins. And, and that same grace that, that forgives and justifies, it, it begins to change you from the inside out. And, and you begin to, to learn how to obey God from the heart rather than just as a, as a show. It's, it's the work of God's Spirit within us. And it's that, it's that in Christ reality that makes keeping up appearances less and less appealing. Not that, it, not that it won't necessarily be a struggle for you, but it makes that pull, the allure of trying to make ourselves look a certain way for the sake of others, it makes it less appealing. The more confident you are in God's approval of you in Christ, the less needy you are for other people's approval. Like, like Ray Ortland said, some might like you, some might not. But what really matters is that God in Christ has welcomed and accepted me. Uh, the more you begin to grasp that, His welcome and His acceptance, the, the less tempted you'll be to try to impress others with the fake version of you. And so in, in Christ, in, in 
the obedient Son, Jesus Christ, as, as people who are in Christ, we, we learn to be open and unafraid before God. Uh, because we're not trying to impress Him. We're, we're not trying to make ourselves acceptable to Him. We, instead, we receive His gift of acceptance and welcome and approval in Christ, and we begin living out of that identity. And, and as a result... We not only learn how to live open and unafraid before God, but it becomes easier and easier to, to be open and unafraid with others as well. Because we know that ultimately, their judgment of us is not what ultimately matters. It's what God says about us in Christ, that we are forgiven, that we are justified, that we are adopted children, the objects of His love, that that belovedness that Ortland said we crave for, we have it in Christ. And so, again, Jesus tells these stories sometimes that that seem a little simple on the surface, but he's, He's going after our hearts. He's saying, just give up that that keeping up appearances, all of that, just give that up. Rejoice in who you are in Christ. Rejoice in the love of God for you in Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, would you help us to be people who know who we are in Christ and and live out of that identity? I pray that you would help us to put off that, that way of life that is just a, a show. Help us to live humbly and honestly before you and, and transparently before others and, and experience your love and your mercy and your grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.